Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download onto your smartphone. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N and is available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866-609-3711. Hey, this is episode 32, 32 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, and it is uh, Wednesday, Wednesday, November 24th. Got to get my... uh, Got to get my days together here. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious last November's presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't let me say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support us financially, go to DocWashburnShow.com and click on the Become a Patron button. Now, we are delighted, delighted to have a new advertiser, RedRiverYourWay.com. If you tried buying a car recently, you realize there's a chip shortage, that you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. I know people who have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live just to get the vehicle that they're looking for. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership right smack dab in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, the freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you, no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry. Red River experts are still there to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has an Explore Payment Options button. Clicking that guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options that you have full control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can determine what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. So if you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door, no matter where you live. RedRiverYourWay.com. You'll be glad you did. All right. So, big news out recently is that we have released a lot of barrels of oil from our strategic oil reserve. Heard about this? Now, a couple of things about this. First of all, when Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, she used to be the uh, governor of Michigan, when she was asked how much oil does America 
use each day. Uh, it didn't go well. There are various figures about this, so I'm curious if you know. How many barrels of oil does the U.S. consume per day? I don't have that number in front of me. So some suggest it's about 18 million, which would suggest you're releasing less than three days' worth of supply from the petroleum reserve. Do you get that? She doesn't have that right in front of her. She's energy secretary, and she doesn't know how many barrels of oil America uses each day. Did you hear what the usurper Biden said? By the way, I, I don't ever use the word president in front of the word Biden. I call him usurper Biden. You can use it. Maybe it'll catch on. But it doesn't mean we should just stand by idly and wait for prices to drop on their own. Instead, we're taking action. The big part of the, of the reason Americans are facing high gas prices is because oil-producing countries and large companies have not ramped up the supply of oil quickly enough to meet the demand. Okay, a year ago, we were the biggest oil-producing country in the world, but he took care of that, didn't he? Oh, shut down that Keystone XL pipeline. This is a problem totally manufactured by Joe Biden and his handlers. And the smaller supply means higher prices globally, globally for oil. To address these issues, I got on the phone with leaders from other countries grappling with this challenge to try to find ways to lower oil prices and ultimately to, to the, the price you pay at the pump. So today I'm announcing that the largest ever release from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve to help provide the supply we need as we recover from this pandemic. Oh, he mispronounced that last word. It should have been pandemic. Um, so if you're watching the video of him saying these words, he's staring intently at the teleprompter, trying to read the script in front of him. I got on the phone and talked to these people. He didn't get on the phone to talk to these people. He's just reading words off a teleprompter. He has no idea what he's talking about. He has no idea. He just tries to read the words on the teleprompter. Case in point. A lot of innovation. Because of the actions we've taken, things have begun to change. And to quote, in the past three weeks. Uh, wait. <laughs> what was that? Right in the middle of that, huh? End of quote. End of quote. Okay. Okay, I got you. I got you. So it turns out, turns out, and, and thank you so much for all the, the happy uh, Thanksgiving uh, wishes from the folks listening live on the Podbean app. It turns out that a lot of this oil, a lot of this oil that we're letting go of is going to go to China and, and India. Do you know that? U.S. taps 50 million barrels of oil from reserves in an attempt to tamper spiking costs at the gas pump. Oh, yeah, really? Really? Fox Business has it. Usurper Biden's 
move to tap the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve is expected to supply Chinese and Indian oil needs as gas demands have led to global shortages. The White House said the Department of Energy will release 50 million barrels of oil held in U.S. reserves, 18 million of which have already been congressionally approved for sale. China and India have been actively purchasing U.S. sour crude oil produced in the Gulf of Mexico, first reported by Bloomberg. Sour crude contains high levels of sulfur, which reportedly makes it more expensive to process and traditionally turns buyers away. But U.S. produced sour crude oil appeals to foreign buyers because of its relatively affordable price tag. So, um, so this is not at all about trying to reduce the price at the pump in the U.S. Not at all. But Biden doesn't know, and Biden doesn't care. I mean... I hope you figure that out by now. Well, if you're if you're listening to the Doc Washburn show, then you probably have and, and you've come to the right place. It's intentional, okay? It's intentional. There's there's no other way of looking at this. Um, and articles are being written about it all over the place and books will be written about it. A good example is Gary Anderson over at the American spectator article came out earlier this week is Joe Biden, a human mind detector subtitle his presidency could be a kamikaze effort to push a far-left agenda. He says, During the brutal war on the Eastern Front, World War II, from 1941-1945, both Germany and Russia repeatedly used people as human mind detectors, forcing them into areas sown with anti-personnel and anti-tank mines. If an individual was fortunate enough to find a lane through the lethal devices, soldiers followed. If he stepped on a device and it exploded, another poor wretch took his place. Most of these people were from penal battalions, and a high percentage were political prisoners. Some observers believe that the far-left progressive wing of the Democrat Party is using usurper Joe Biden as both a political prisoner and an expendable human mind detector to push through its radical agenda. In a recent column, conservative pundit Mark Thiessen explains the left's rationale. Much of the progressive agenda is built around entitlements. It is a fact that once an entitlement is enacted, it never goes away. In Mark Thiessen's view, after capturing the increasingly weak mind of Joe Biden, the progressives sent him on a suicide mission to enact their radical agenda. He believes that they understand that they will not get everything they are demanding and will likely destroy Biden's presidency in the process, but Joe is expendable. 
if they can get their foot in the door with some of their entitlements. Mark Thiessen contends the left believes that even a Republican win in 2024 will not be able to dislodge all the free stuff. Thiessen points to the Republican failure to get rid of Obamacare under Trump as an example. So far, this approach appears to be successful. Some elements of Biden's progressive-driven Build Back Better legislation will likely get enacted. The left will blame the president for not getting more while appalled moderates and swing voters push his approval ratings further underwater. In this scenario, the Biden presidency is acceptable collateral damage. You know, it's kind of like when Pelosi was pushing Obamacare through in 2009 and some of the moderate Democrats in the U.S. House were like, yeah, but we're not going to be reelected. She's like, it's worth it. Don't worry. We're making permanent structural change. Republicans get back in power. They won't be able to undo it. And she was right. Anyway, over the American Spectator, Gary Anderson says, when I first read the Mark Thiessen column, the Washington Post, I was skeptical that nitwits such as Representative Alexandria Occasional Cortex were capable of the long-range thinking and cynicism involved in this kamikaze strategy. On further reflection, however, not all the extreme left are empty-headed millennials. In his two presidential runs, Senator Bernie Sanders realized he was unelectable, but he hoped to push his party's platform to the left, and he largely succeeded. It's unclear whether Biden willingly sold his moderate soul to get a leftist buy-in for his candidacy or whether he became a, f- a true fellow traveler on the road to Democrat socialism. But either way, he's losing moderate Democrats and swing voters at an unprecedented rate. Perhaps in his prime, Biden would have realized he didn't need the radical left for either the nomination or the general election, given Trump's unpopularity and none of the parties left was going to vote for Donald Trump, even if Biden had adopted a more centered approach. Oh, wait, wait. So this guy thinks that Biden didn't actually steal from Trump. Okay, that's hilarious. Anyway, a Biden with all his faculties would have given a head nod to the left, as Hillary did in 2016, and pursued more moderate policies when in office. Now he's in a pickle, and once again, it is of his own making. Let's presume... Now, the radical left of the Democrat Party really does have a long-term plan of getting what it can now and blowing off 2022 and 2024 in hopes that a future electorate will become tired of whatever the Republicans are selling by 2028. Then, a Democrat landslide would give them a president and Congress which together would usher in a true socialist agenda. There are a few assumptions in this scenario that if they prove false— would throw a monkey wrench into the works. The first is that the firebrands on the left will be patient enough to carry out this Machiavellian strategy. The millennials constitute an instant gratification generation. Patience is not one of their virtues. It's entirely possible they will decide that Bernie Sanders and company are not ideologically pure enough and threaten to form a third party. That threat could drive the Democrat Party so far to the left that it becomes nationally crippled for a generation. The second assumption is equally dangerous for the progressives. Democrats believe they are the party of the youth. Millennials are certainly drifting left, 
but they're aging as well, and there's a new generation behind them. Situationally aware Democrats should take note of the fact that many college-age students at sporting events are chanting, let's go Brandon, or it's less polite variant. I was surprised at a high school football game last month in upstate New York to hear the let's go Brandon chant coming from the student section and watched with ill-concealed glee as members of the left-leaning local teachers union frantically ran through the bleachers trying to shush them. It's too early to say if we're seeing a reverse baby boom effect, but if I were a Democrat, I'd be somewhat concerned. Not all of Biden's problems can be blamed on his leftward tilt. Many have been self-inflicted over the dismal nine months that he's been in office. Now, he's facing another problem of his own making. That being Vice President Kamala Harris, or she, she's better known as Pepe Le Pew after a recent Paris trip. Her ratings are even lower than Biden's. It will take many cans of tomato juice to get rid of the skunk stink of incompetence that surrounds her. The good news for Biden is that this has greatly lessened the chance of fellow Democrats invoking the 25th Amendment on him. Given the vice president's ghastly performance to date, most Democrats would likely rather go with a first Phoebe, <laughs> the first Phoebe they know, than an individual who has proven herself unqualified for the Oval Office. At this point in time, the best thing that could happen to the Biden presidency would be an uptick in COVID-19 that would give his handlers an excuse to lock him back up in his basement, limiting him to press releases crafted by his staff, issuing carefully edited pre-recorded statements by himself, and keeping him as far away from the media as possible. After all, that approach is probably his career highlight. Frankly, his best strategy going forward is a bowl of warm soup and a nap. That's Gary Anderson over the American Spectator. The article entitled, Is Joe Biden a Human Mine Detector? His presidency could be a kamikaze effort to push a fall, a far-left agenda. Yeah, I believe it is. I believe that's exactly what's going on. Now, we talk about the vaccine and the vaccine mandate. And, and oh, by the way, by the way, I do need to tell you what's coming up. What's coming up a little bit later in, in the show. The trial of Jeffrey Epstein's old girlfriend is about to get underway. By the way, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, who didn't kill himself. Also, Biden must really want Kyle Rittenhouse to sue him. And we'll be looking at the question of why are hospitals killing COVID patients by denying therapeutics that work. So there's... There's a lot to talk about today. A lot going on today. Now, one of the things, one of the things, maybe the only thing, that stands between us and the, the type of absolute dictatorship that's going on in Australia is our Second Amendment right to Keep and bear arms. So I've got a clip for you from a guy named Michael Gunner. Michael Gunner is the chief minister of the Northern Territory of Australia. Australia, uh, unlike the U.S., is divided up into about five or six territories. So this guy's like the governor of a state 
except much more powerful than that. So I got to play for you what he's saying because they are forcibly putting people into camps in Australia. I don't know if you heard about that or not. Yeah, that's going on. And in his territory, it's mostly Aborigines, indigenous Australian people, put them into camps. And he's furious. He's furious at anybody, at anybody who speaks up against the vaccine mandate. And it doesn't matter to him if you've already been vaccinated. As far as he's concerned, if you speak up against the vaccine mandate, you will, you will take the needle, in other words. If you speak up against that, as far as this guy is concerned, then you're an anti-vaxxer. Even if you've been double vaccinated, even if you've got the, uh, the booster afterwards, you've had the gall to say a word against the mandate. This guy is furious with you. He is putting people into camps. And probably the only thing so far keeping that from happening in the U.S. is our Second Amendment. Here he is. If you are anti-mandate, you are absolutely anti-vax. I don't care what your personal vaccination status is. If you support, champion, give a green light, give comfort to, support anybody who argues against the vaccine, you are an anti-vaxxer. Absolutely. Your personal vaccination status is utterly irrelevant. If you campaign against the mandate, if you campaign against people being vaccinated in vulnerable settings, teachers in classrooms, I'll be really clear, at that point in time, people were actually supporting the idea of a teacher being unvaccinated in a remote community classroom with kids who cannot be vaccinated. I reject that, I still reject it. And if you are out there in any way, shape or form campaigning against this mandate, you are absolutely anti-vax. If you say pro-persuasion, stuff it, shove it. We are absolutely gonna make sure as many territorials as possible are vaccinated. That is our best protection against this thing. And if you look at the Doty model that's only come out since, that says if you double dose 80 in remote communities, five and up, I think you'll see our vaccine mandate is absolutely crucial to protecting lives, particularly Aboriginal lives. And I will never back away from supporting vaccines. And anyone out there who comes for the mandate, you are anti-vax. Do you get that? He'll never, never back away from it. He'll never back away from it. Look, there's way, way, way too much getting out. Way, way, way too much getting out. About the negative side effects of the vaccine. They can't keep a lid on it forever. You know what I'm saying? They can't keep a lid on it forever. Uh, LifeSite News. COVID shots intended to reduce world's population by poisoning billions, so says South African doctor. Dr. Shankara Chetty said the deaths are meant to follow the vaccinations. We'll never be able to be pinned on the poison. They will be too diverse. There will be too many. And they will be in too broad a time frame for us to understand that we have been poisoned. Dr. Shankara Chetty, a prominent doctor created with 
advancing the development of early treatments of COVID-19, has stated in his judgment, the purpose of the pandemic and vaccine campaigns is to control and kill off a large population proportion of our population without anyone suspecting that we were poisoned. His family doctor in South Africa, who according to his website, has treated 7,000 COVID-19 patients without a single hospitalization or deaths, combined insights from his medical knowledge along with his observation of government dictates and media censorship to support his conclusions. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Doctors are having to sue hospitals because the hospitals don't want them to give their patients ivermectin. Ivermectin, which heals people, which cures people of the coronavirus. They're having to sue hospitals. Uh, Mary Beth Pfeiffer over at Substack. A judge stands up to a hospital, step aside, and give a dying man ivermectin. Chicago area judge saved a grandfather's life with a single question that exposes hospitals blocking doctors from using a safe FDA-approved drug. And that single question is, why? And she's got a picture of a guy named Sun Ung at Edward Hospital, Napierville, Illinois, where officials refused until ordered by a court to administer life-saving ivermectin for COVID. And the guy looks like he's pretty much dead here. He looks horrible. He looks awful. Sun Ung, first name S-U-N, second name N-G, Retired contractor from Hong Kong traveled to Illinois to celebrate his only granddaughter's first birthday. He got COVID and was near death in a Chicago area hospital. All other options were exhausted, but the hospital refused to give Mr. Ung a generic FDA-approved drug with an extraordinary safety record that a doctor believed could save his life. Finally, a judge asked the right question about ivermectin. Quote, what's the downside, unquote. Put another way. If a man is dying of COVID in an ICU and all else has been tried, why not order a hospital to give a safe last-ditch drug? Edward Hospital, located near Chicago, Napierville, offered three arguments as to why Sun Ung 71 should not be given ivermectin. Number one, there could be side effects. Number two, ordering, ordering ivermectin would violate its policies. And number three, forcing the issue would be extraordinary judicial overreach. On each argument, DuPage County Circuit Court Judge Paul Fullerton firmly disagreed. And a November 5th decision that is a model of rational decision-making in an irrational era, Dr. Fullerton said, I can't think of a more extraordinary situation than when we are talking about a man's life. I'm not forcing this hospital to do anything other than to step aside. I'm just asking, or not asking, I'm ordering through the court's power to allow Dr. Bain to have the emergency privileges and administer this medicine. 
The hospital ultimately stepped aside. Dr. Alan Bain, an internist, administered a five-day course of 24 milligrams of ivermectin from November 8th through November 12th. Mr. Ung, who with his wife, Ying, had come from Hong Kong to celebrate their granddaughter's birthday, was able to breathe without a ventilator within five days. He, in fact, removed the endotracheal himself. He left the ICU Tuesday, November 16th, and although confused and weak, was breathing Sunday without supplemental oxygen on a regular hospital floor. Dr. Bain, who administered the drug in two previous court cases after hospitals refused, said every day after ivermectin there was accelerated and stable improvement. Three times we've shown something. There's a signal, there's a signal of benefit for ventilator patients. Mr. Ung's remarkable progress stands in sharp relief to the repeated attempts by Edward Elmhurst Health, the hospital's managing system, to thwart the use of ivermectin. It succeeded in having the court's initial November 1 order dismissed by claiming that Mr. Ung was in better health than his lawsuit contended. He wasn't. And then defied the November 5th order, saying Dr. Bain was not vaccinated. A negative test resolved the issue. Moreover, after Mr. Ung's treatment was complete, the hospital system filed notice that would appeal, it would appeal the order that had already been carried out. It did this even though Sun Ung seemed to have benefited greatly. The patient's improvement or condition generally did not seem to matter to the hospital. At the outset, the hospital argued against court intervention, saying Mr. Ung is not terminal at this point. But it was forced to admit that he had for days teetered on the brink of death after Mr. Ung's daughter and only child, Man Kwan Ung, spoke to a hospital doctor November 3rd and took copious notes that were submitted to the court. The doctor told Dr. Ung, who holds a Ph.D. in mechanical engineering, he has been in the same state for many, many days, critically ill, according to a court affidavit. A nurse, meantime, suggested that Dr. Ung stop all this aggressive care and let her father die naturally. The hospital doctor estimated that someone in his condition being on a ventilator like that has a 10, maybe 15% chance of survival, the judge recounted in his decision. That bleak prediction was not an option for Mr. Ung's wife of 40 years or the daughter fighting on his behalf. Dr. Ung said in court papers, we love him dearly. He is our world. I cannot give up on him, even if the defendants have. The judge's finest moment may have been when he dashed the most glaring myth about ivermectin, that it is not safe despite decades of use that shows otherwise. Noting that all drugs have side effects, Judge Fullerton listed ivermectin's effects from a government website. He said, number one, generally well-tolerated. Number two, dizziness. Number three, pruritus. Number four, nausea or diarrhea. These are the side effects for the dosage that's being asked to be administered. The risk of these side effects are so minimal that Mr. Ung's current situation outweighs the risk by 100-fold. Dr. Alan Bain, having been duly sworn, deposes and says as follows. 
Ivermectin is a well-researched drug that has been clinically shown to reduce mortality in multiple studies through careful meta-analysis for over 5,000 patients and has been conservatively shown, conservatively shown to reduce mortality as low as 68%. In a landmark review article dated May 11, 2021, Dr. Asia Camber Zaidi describes 20 different levels of action against the SARS-CoV-2 virus relative to the mo- molecule of ivermectin. He says, below I'll mention one or two of them that are very critical for this particular patient and all patients who are in the throes of the down-spiraling affliction of COVID-19 that will lead to death if not taken care of properly. Of important application relative to the biochemistry of this drug and in accordance with the research of Dr. Matsuyama in 2020, Ivermectin has been shown to drastically slow down the stiffening lung effect or fibrosis. The drug also reduces the need for oxygen and staves off chronic hypoxemic states or high oxygen requiring states that can cause a patient's early demise. In addition, this molecule also will inhibit another intermediary that can slow down. That can slow down. Recovery. So Dr. Alan Bain gave a supplemental affidavit testifying to a successful use of ivermectin to treat COVID-19 in gravely ill patients. Judge Fullerton ordered this hospital to step aside and allow him to give the drug that saved Mr. Ung's life. If he hadn't yet made his position clear, the judge then addressed a statement by a hospital doctor who the judge said testified that the risk is that there is no benefit. On the contrary, the judge said the possible benefit this court sees is helping save Mr. Ung's life with this drug. You know, what have, what, what, whatever happened to the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm? What's all this stuff about, oh, just let him die. Let him die, let him die, let him die, let him die, let him die. Just let him die. Why have you thought about just letting him die? I think you should just let him die. No, well, this, this drug will make it feel... Would, 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 you know, would cause him to recover or bring him back to us. Yeah, screw that. Let him die. What happened to the Hippocratic Oath? That's what I want to know. Uh, by the way, Ralph Lorigo, an attorney from Buffalo, New York, who represented Ung and has received inquiries on behalf of 50 more patients since September said the Ung case was by far the costliest so far with three decisions, four court appearances, and now an appeal that is certainly moot. Attorney Larigo said that's a terrible set of circumstances that people have to hire a lawyer to save a loved one's life. That is a crime. Larigo battled another hospital in the Edward Elmhurst Health System last spring in a similarly drawn-out case to get ivermectin for Nurije Fipe, 68, her case inspired Dr. Ung to file suit for good reason. Desirita Fipe, who was a fierce advocate on her mother's behalf, texted the author last week saying, Mom is doing so good. Thank God it's been four and a half months. Mom is home from the hospital and getting stronger each day. In an interview Sunday, Dr. Ung said her father is not out of the woods yet, but ivermectin made a clear difference. Before given the medication, every attempt to wean her father, even briefly, from the respirator failed. Within eight hours on the medication, he was able to undergo a one-hour breathing trial. 
She said, I am positive when asked if she credits ivermectin. While Dr. Bain was well aware of ivermectin's ability to fight the COVID virus and early infection, even he was surprised to discover its late-stage effectiveness. He said it quells the fire of the inflammatory storm and also helps to lower the progression of stiffened lungs, also known as pulmonary fibrosis. That's the beauty of this drug. I'm not saying it's a cure. It's just amazing. Now, that is Mary Beth Pfeiffer, who is writing over on Substack on Michael Capuzzo's Rescue Substack, Mary Beth Pfeiffer. Her latest book is called Lyme, The First Epidemic of Climate Change, which led her to COVID-19. Both diseases have been denied and mismanaged in a corrupt healthcare system. Lyme was just released in paperback. Remarkable, isn't it? Why do hospitals insist on killing people? Why do hospitals insist on withholding treatment that they know works? Treatment that they know works. It's remarkable, isn't it? It's remarkable. By the way, Cheryl Ackeson. Cheryl Ackeson is a uh, is a great investigative reporter. She used to be mainstream news, CNN and then CBS for years. She's now doing it independently. She's written some great books. On her Rumble account, she interviewed a physician assistant named Deborah Conrad who says when she saw a flood of COVID-19 vaccine adverse events in the ER, the hospital where she worked, her superiors discouraged her from reporting them to the federal database vaccine adverse event reporting system, just so you know. There's a lot out there they don't want us to know about, you know. A lot out there they do not want us to know about. Oh, by the way, I don't know if you heard about this. Consumer Affairs. Consumer Affairs has a coronavirus update. Mark Huffman over Consumer Affairs. Coronavirus update. One-third of healthcare workers are not vaccinated. OSHA says it will not enforce the government's vaccine mandate. One-third of healthcare workers are not vaccinated. I wonder why. wonder why. Dr. Molly James, frontline ICU doctor and founder of the James Clinic, says, I bet it's more. The AMA lied and said 96% of doctors were vaccinated. A lot of us know better. I wonder why that is. If it's so safe and effective, you'd think everybody in healthcare would be vaccinated by now. Go figure. Just uh, 
scratching my head, you know. You don't think, um, you don't think it might have something to do with money and power. Could that, could that possibly have anything to do with anything? Money and power? Just asking. Just asking. Look, I uh, I don't want to ever be in the situation in which people say, Doc, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you warn us? So frankly, the fact that the Lord closed the door for me at Cumulus Media, which was censoring me, and he opened this door here, Uh, that's something I'm very thankful for. God put together a, a group of men who saw some value in what I uh, in what I do, and who financially invested in this thing. And we're blessed. We're blessed that now some some advertisers have come alongside us and say, "Look, I want to be part of this too." Not just because. I support and encourage the fact that you are speaking the truth in love, not just because we support and encourage the fact that you're trying to get the word out, but also because we realize that you have a large enough audience that you will be able to give us a good return on our investment. And there's no better example than myfamilyhealthplan.com. My buddy Art Wilborn at MyFamilyHealthPlan.com is hearing from people all over the country. So let me ask you, are you like most Americans? Did Obamacare, the so-called Affordable Care Act, make your health care more expensive? Does your health insurance premium feel like a second mortgage? Does your sky-high deductible prevent you from going to the doctor? Do your sky-high co-pays keep you from going to the doctor? Now, if you answered yes to any of those questions, you need to get in touch with my buddy, Art Wilborn, at myfamilyhealthplan.com. When you go on the website, the first thing you see is the word affordable plans. Those two words, affordable plans. The next thing you see, save 30 to 50% on premiums. Whoa, that's serious money. Personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no co-pays. Wow. Do you know that was possible in this day and age? It is. The next thing you see is the button to click on that says schedule call now. And that's what you need to click on. And by the way, when you go to myfamilyhealthplan.com, you book a free consultation, Art Wilborn Make sure there are no gaps in your coverage. And also, he gives you a personalized plan 
you don't have to wind up uh, covering things like abortion that would that would horrify you, that would violate your deeply held religious beliefs. You know what I'm saying? So save money on your insurance, no gaps in your coverage, save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no co-pays at myfamilyhealthplan.com. That's the website to go to, myfamilyhealthplan.com. You'll be glad you did. You'll be glad you did. Okay. Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse. You know, um, Biden called him a white supremacist last year. And so uh, Peter Ducey, Fox News, asking White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki yesterday if, if Biden... No, I don't call him president. Usurper Biden has any intention of apologizing to him. And Jen Psaki doubles down, so they must really want Dementia Joe to be sued. It went something, something like this. Would the president ever apologize to the acquitted Kenosha shooter Kyle Rittenhouse for suggesting online and on TV that he is a white supremacist? Well, let's be clear what we're talking about here. This is about a campaign video released last year that used President Trump's own words during a debate as he refused to condemn white supremacists and militia groups. And President Trump, as we know from history, and as many of you covered, didn't just refuse to condemn militia groups on the debate stage. He actively encourage them throughout his presidency. So, uh, you know, what we've seen are the tragic consequences of that. When people think it's okay to take the law into their own hands instead of allowing law enforcement to do its job. And the president <coughs> believes in condemning hatred, division, and violence. That's exactly what was done in that video. But if uh, you're saying that it was just a campaign video, it wasn't. The president also gave an interview where he said this uh, Rittenhouse was part of a militia coming out of Illinois. Have you ever heard this president referring to Trump say one negative thing about white supremacists. These are all things uh, none of this was proven in the trial. And Kyle Rittenhouse is saying that the president had actual malice in defaming his character. Is that what happened here? The, the president spoke to the verdict uh, last week. Uh, he has obviously condemned uh, the hatred and division and violence we've seen around the country by groups like the Proud Boys uh, and groups that uh, that individual has posed in photos with. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Posed in photos with the Proud Boys. That sounds familiar. New York Post, Kyle Rittenhouse claims ex-lawyer set him up for Proud Boys picture. All right. Kyle Rittenhouse claimed his former attorney set him up for a photo of him posing with purported members of the Proud Boys and making a hand gesture used by white supremacists. Rittenhouse blasted his former legal team, John Pierce and Lynn Wood, saying he didn't know the OK hand signal is now associated with white supremacy and claiming he didn't know what a militia was until after he was arrested. The 18-year-old was seen making the gesture in a now widely circulated picture taken in a Wisconsin bar, but prosecutors were barred from using it in the racially charged homicide case against Rittenhouse, 
who fatally shot two people and injured a third during a confrontation in Kenosha, Wisconsin last year. Rittenhouse acquitted on all charges last week after claiming self-defense, posed for the picture in January while awaiting trial. In an interview that aired Tuesday, Rittenhouse told News Nation Now's Ashley Banfield, quote, I didn't know that the OK hand sign was a symbol for white supremacy, just as I didn't know those people in the bar were proud boys. They were set up by my former attorney, John Pierce, who was fired because of that for putting me in situations like that with people I don't agree with. Pierce was not in attendance at the bar, but he was planning to use the Proud Boys as security as law office during a hearing in the case, according to Rittenhouse. An email to Rittenhouse's former legal team from the Post was not immediately acknowledged. Of course it wasn't, and it never will be. When asked if he had second thoughts about the picture, Kyle Rittenhouse said, I definitely don't think it looked good to hang out with people who are now known as the Proud Boys. I definitely wouldn't do that again. I found out they were Proud Boys when I saw the headlines. I thought they were just a bunch of, like, construction dudes based on how they looked. Rittenhouse blamed his attorneys for the narrative that he had been a member of an unorganized militia when he showed up armed with a semi-automatic rifle in Kenosha during anti-police brutality and anti-racism protests last year. Protests? Protests? They were riots, you idiot! What do you mean, protests? He also continued to blame his former legal team for his being kept in jail for 87 days when he could have waived extradition and made bail. Rittenhouse said, we fired him because he was like going on with all this QAnon and election fraud stuff and just stuff we don't agree with. In a separate interview with Fox News' Tucker Carlson that aired Monday, Rittenhouse bashed usurper Biden for defaming his character by tweeting out a video suggesting Rittenhouse was a white supremacist during the interview. Rittenhouse also said he was looking into taking legal action against people who have misrepresented his case. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. I think we got uh, I think we got some audio on that. Yeah, Kyle Rittenhouse. Here we go. Here we go. How long were you there? I was in jail for 87 days, and this goes as follows in with Lynn Wood, who... By the way, this is the, from Monday Night with uh, Tucker Carlson. Let me, let me, I'm sorry, let me back it up. Let me, let me start it all over again. Pardon me. How long were you there? I was in jail for 87 days, and this goes as follows in with Lynn Wood, who Lynn Wood was raising money on my behalf, and he held me in jail for 87 days, disrespected my wishes, put me on media interviews, which I should never have done, which he said, oh, you're going to go talk to the Washington Post, which was not a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, it really wasn't. Along with John Pierce, they said I was safer in jail instead of at home with my family. And then after I'm billed. Your lawyer said that. My lawyer said that. John Pierce and Lynn Wood. 87 days is a long time to be in jail. It, it was it was very long. I lost a lot of weight in there. I, I, I since then gained it back. I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but 87 days of not being with my family for defending myself and being taken advantage to being used for a cause by these by John Pearson Lynn Wood trying to solicit not solicit trying to raise money so they can take it for their own benefit not trying to set me free 
So you think they could have raised the money for bail faster, but they didn't? Um, I believe it. I believe sometime in September, September 5th, I want to say, they had over a million dollars. Wow. Wow. So, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, a lot of people still believe that uh, Lynn Wood, this attorney out of Georgia, is some kind of knight in shining armor simply because he came out of nowhere and said, oh, by the way, the election was stolen. Now, anybody with any sense believes the election was stolen. I get it. I get it. But with Lynn Wood... I thought it fascinating. There was a, a runoff for two, two U.S. Senate seats in Georgia on January 5th. And President Trump went down to Georgia and did two rallies for these two U.S. Senators, Kelly Loeffler and, uh, and Purdue, begging people to get out and vote for them on January 5th because we didn't want a U.S. Senate controlled by the Democrats, which is what we would have if their opponents, John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock, got elected, right? Lynn Wood, on the other hand, insisted, insisted, that since they stole the election from Trump on November 3rd, that Georgians should not get out and vote for the Republicans. Got that? So what happened? Well, what happened was Georgians did not get out and vote for Republicans. Both Democrats got elected. The Democrats took over control of the U.S. Senate, and that's just fine with Lynn Wood. That's just fine with Lynn Wood. Know what I'm saying? Lynn Wood has been a Democrat all his life. He was contributing to Democrat candidates as late as 2018, and some people just insist on seeing him as some kind of conservative savior, some kind of conservative knight in white armor. But he's not. In my humble opinion, he is an agent provocateur. And I saw a lot of people commenting on social media. Gee, I think Kyle was being, um, uh, you know, he was being led astray because Lynn Wood's just a great guy. He was coached. Now, he's telling you the truth. He's telling you the truth. All right. And sometimes, uh, sometimes people don't like to hear the truth. And that's a problem. But I can't let it stop me. You know, I've, I've had 
people fuss at me before. And, and again, I go back to that verse in Galatians. Have I now become your enemy for telling you the truth? Hope not. Hope not. Anyway, uh, be that as it may. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. And the Tweet of the Day today is brought to you by Red River Your Way. Red River Your Way, where you have the freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You buy online and they will drive it to you no matter where you are. Today's Tweet of the Day comes from the the great Daniel Horowitz, senior editor over theblaze.com. Tweet of the Day says, Don't forget to wear your coat this winter so the person next to you doesn't freeze to death. Ho-ho! All righty then. (laughs) Well, no, that's, that's the way they do it with the vaccine, you know. First, Fauci and Biden say that the vaccine will prevent you from catching COVID, much less being hospitalized or dying. And then when the vaccinated get COVID and get hospitalized and die, they say, well, we got to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. Uh, Okay. uh, So is that kind of like saying, uh, uh, wait, let me think. Please wear your coat when it gets cold so I won't freeze. So I get vaccinated and get the boosters forever and ever. Amen. But I'm I'm in danger because you might not be. Uh, <laughs> anyway, thanks so much to Red River Your Way for sponsoring today's tweet of the day. And thanks so much to Daniel Horowitz over at theblaze.com for providing us with today's tweet of the day. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Um, so this whole thing with the, the vaccines and the ivermectin and everything, a doctor named Mary Tally Bowden, Mary Tally Bowden, was on Daniel Horowitz's podcast, and she had some remarkable things to say. You go on these forums, you know, professional forums, and if you speak out or if you suggest that there may be some concerns about the vaccine, they will crucify you. So no one speaks up on these professional forums. It's, you know, we just Mm. lay low because we don't want to be smeared. Um, That's, I can speak from personal experience that has happened to me. So that is very concerning. There's there's no discussion amongst the professionals what's going on. Uh, I mean, one thing is I have people actively trying to take my license away. I have, there's a group on Twitter and they're probably on other platforms too, but um, that has posted my name and encouraged all their followers to report me to the board. Um, That kind of stuff is just, you know, I'm not prescribing rat poison to people. I am prescribing a very safe drug, which in my clinical experience has been shown to significantly help. 
And the fact that they can get away with doing that and that I have to hire a lawyer to defend myself is just absurd. Yeah, it is. It is. So you're not prescribing rat poison. How about horse paste? Are you prescribing horse paste? <laughs> See, that's what the um, that's what the vaccine cultists call ivermectin. Even though six years ago, the people who developed ivermectin won a Nobel Prize for treating human beings with ivermectin. There is a cabal of powerful interests who don't want you to get well if and when you get uh, the China virus. And they certainly don't want to allow anybody to give you what will make you well. So a few months ago, A lot of people in my home market, Little Rock, when I was doing a local radio talk show, were saying, hey, why can't we use ivermectin? So UAMS, the University of Arkansas Medical System, got concerned about that. Because we don't want people to start using ivermectin. So... They planted a story with local TV stations in Little Rock. Hey, this is a horse dewormer. You know, you don't want to use that. Lying. And three of the four TV stations bought it because they're not actually journalists anymore. They just said, well, UAMS said it's horse medicine, horse dewormer. So that's, yeah, we got to make sure people don't take that, right? So... One of the stations didn't buy it. There's a guy named Bob Clawson, who is the evening news anchor at KARK4. And he's like, no, no, let's, let's wait a minute. No, this is, we can't just go on saying that a medicine that is, has been safely used by humans for years is horse dewormer just because UAMS said so. So God bless the one journalist in television news in Little Rock, Arkansas, who stood up and said, no, wait, 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 wait. Wait. Bob Clawson at KRK4. God bless you. Oh, this is good. Did you hear uh, Disney caved on the vaccine mandate and the White House flipped out? And Ron DeSantis wins again. That's pretty sweet. Jordan Boyd has it over the Federalist. Walt Disney World Resort in Florida announced this week it would suspend its COVID-19 vaccine mandate at the state legislature and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis enacted legislation curbing the large employer's coercion power. In a statement, Disney said, we believe that our approach to mandatory vaccines has been the right one as we've continued to focus on the safety and well-being of our cast members and guests. And at this point, more than 90% of active Florida-based cast members have already verified that they're fully vaccinated. 
We'll address legal developments as appropriate. Disney's policy change comes on the heels of legislation signed by the state's Republican governor that effectively shields Florida employees from being fired over their decisions not to get the shot based on medical, religious, or natural, natural immunity reasons and fines businesses that don't comply with tens of thousands of dollars. The new law, which was drafted in a special legislation session called by DeSantis to fight vaccine coercion, also says unvaccinated workers must be given exemptions if they agree to undergo regular testing or wear a mask. DeSantis spokeswoman Christina Peshaw tweeted in a statement, nobody should lose his or her, her job over these mandates, and we thank legislative leaders for their part in developing on the promise to keep Florida free. Disney is a major employer in Florida, and we're proud that the happiest place on earth is here in our state. We hope Disney and any other company that has suspended or terminated workers due to vaccine mandates will consider rehiring them. Also follows a temporary stay by U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, putting OSHA, their rule created under the direction of usurper Joe Biden, which required private employers with 100 or more employees to mandate the COVID-19 shot or risk hefty fines. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki lamented Florida's new laws earlier this week and criticized Governor DeSantis when she said, I think the Disney piece is important to differentiate because as they're based in Florida, and obviously the governor there has consistently taken steps to take steps backward as it relates to fighting the pandemic, not forward. She also claimed 60% of business leaders wanted to move forward on their own with vaccine requirements. She said, we've seen them implemented at a lot of companies. They've been effective. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people lost their jobs. And overall, it give, gives a lot of businesses certainty about their workforce, makes people feel more confident coming back to work. Well, I guess except for the ones who have the negative side effects and wind up in the hospital because of the vaccines. I guess maybe maybe that might be a problem, right, Jen Psaki? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I don't enjoy spitting her name out of my mouth. But man, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So it seems a U.S. senator, and I haven't been able to find out his name, was interviewing the CEO of the American Trucking Association about vaccine mandates, and it went something like this. When we're talking about how the drivers would uh, feel about a, ma a vaccine mandate, what, what, what kind of reactions are you getting from them on that? Just all of them required for a vaccine to do business. I want to be clear and qualify this, that this isn't about being pro or anti-vax for us. Um, you know, we've been, we've been moving the vaccine, PPE and test kits. So this is uh, something our industry is very forward leaning on. Uh, but in our sample survey of our fleets, uh, it, it came back as 37% of our drivers not only said no, but hell no. Now, let's just take a conservative number. Let's just say 3.7%, not 37%, were to actually leave rather than get the vaccine. That'd be catastrophic. We're already short 80,000. That's going to inflate it to a quarter million. So for us, you know, we've tried to be very clear with the administration that if you do this, I understand the logic behind it, but if you do this, these are the consequences. So if you're trying to solve the supply chain problem, 
You know, you're actually compounding it and actually hurting the very problem that you're trying to fix on the vaccine side. So, you know, be careful what you wish for here. Uh, I also don't think, Congressman, that OSHA has the jurisdiction to do this. Yeah. Uh, The Fifth Circuit agrees. The Fifth Circuit agrees. OSHA doesn't have the jurisdiction to do this. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So we'll see. uh, We'll see where that goes. By the way, I don't know if you realize this, but the um, I don't think many people do realize this. There's a woman named Galen Maxwell. Her, na- her first name is pronounced uh, in an unusual manner. It was it's written in an unusual manner. G-H-I-S-L-A-I-N-E, Galen Maxwell. The S is silent. And she was uh, Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend and then apparently his pimp. And I don't know if you knew this, but, um, oh yeah, there's a picture of her with Jeffrey Epstein and Harvey Weinstein. Uh, Galen Maxwell's trial gets underway five days from today. Nobody's really talking about it. Well, Daily Caller has this new Epstein records. Spark calls from Democrat senators to replace Bureau of Prisons director. Democrats of the Senate Judiciary Committee are renewing calls for the firing of Bureau of Prisons director who oversaw the security lapses that culminated in the alleged suicide of billionaire sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. They tweeted out today, this isn't a one-time issue, even under the Biden administration, Bureau of Prisons continues to stonewall to cover up incompetence. Director Michael Carvajal must be replaced. They cited new records published by the New York Times in the last days of his life. Epstein reportedly denied having an interest in killing himself despite displaying suicidal tendencies, offered investment advice to fellow inmates, and misrepresented a phone call he made to a girlfriend. He was reportedly left alone the night he died despite having been repeatedly evaluated out of concerns of suicide. The Democrats describe these failures as well as simple prison log mistakes describing Epstein as black and not a sex offender as incompetence and sloppiness. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Epstein was black, but I'm pretty sure he was a sex offender. Anyway, they previously called for the removal of Carvajal, who was appointed Bureau of Prisons Director by then Attorney General Bill Barr in twenty twenty. The director can only be removed by the attorney general. Okay, right. But what I want to know is why even after he got out of prison for being a sex trafficker, so many famous people decided, hey, that's the guy I want to hang with. Jeffrey Epstein. That's the guy I want to spend some quality time with. Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. People like uh, George step on all of us, right? 
By the way, I got a list here. Here's all 26 locations Bill Clinton flew with Jeffrey Epstein on the Lolita Express. When the Jeffrey Epstein case was revealed, it devastated the global world. An eccentric billionaire, socialite, globetrotting to foreign countries, an unlimited bank account, and all of the elite connections developed throughout the years. It was something from a Hollywood horror show. What shook the world were the dark secrets Epstein, Glenn Maxwell, and their associates did with the hierarchy of the global elite. Celebrities, high-ranking politicians, top brass businessmen, and even the royal family. Prince Andrew, Randy Andy, seemed to be caught in the global net of pedophilia Epstein and Maxwell were operating. One of the most important data points on Jeffrey Epstein is his public flight logs on his private jet, the Lolita Express. There are hundreds of flights. Flights to the Virgin Island, flights to obscure African countries, flights to parts of Asia most couldn't find on a map, and high-ranking countries in Europe. The most interesting part of the entire Lolita Express flight tracker are the guests who trotted the globe with Epstein and his associate, Glenn Maxwell. This will be a multi-series piece on all guests aboard the Lolita Express. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on future articles. Something called the... uh, PatriotOne.substack.com. This article focuses exclusively on former President Bill Clinton. How about that? Clinton's relationship with Epstein is somewhat opaque. We know Clinton had close ties to Epstein. There claims Clinton went to Epstein's private island with two young girls, which the former president has denied. Oh, well. If he denied it, I mean, you know Bill Clinton would never lie, right? Ha! <laughs> Anyway, anyway, one of Epstein's victims, Virginia Jeffrey, said in a 2016 deposition, you know, I remember asking Jeffrey, what's Bill Clinton doing here on Epstein's Island? And he laughed it off and said, well, he owes me favors. We also know Jeffrey Epstein had an obscure painting of Bill Clinton in a blue dress hanging up at his mansion. Remember that one? No matter what the extent of the relationship, there was a reason why Clinton traveled on the Lolita Express 26 times between February 2002 and November 2003. We've taken the liberty to detail all the trips below. There's a lot to digest. Good luck and Godspeed. Well, I'm not going to read all 26 of these out to you. But I will link to it on my personal Facebook page, and you know, after the show, and you know, you can um, you can arrive at your own conclusions. How about that? That work for you? All right, very well, very well. By the way. about this guy who allegedly has now killed six people and mowed down over 50. Is Fox News Radio still saying that he was fleeing something else and it was all a big mistake? 
I mean, are they all a bunch of libs? Why would they try to cover? Why would they be trying to cover for this guy? That's what I understand. You know, it was well, yeah, it was very frustrating. It was very frustrating. You know, doing local radio top and bottom of every hour. You got Fox News radio, but it sounds more like CNN or MSNBC or something like that. Let's see here. MSNBC calls the Waukesha massacre an accident? Really? Check it out. One thing that you worry about, actually two things, Stephanie, is one is the idea of contagion. Uh, whether it has anything to do with this uh, uh, accident last night and, and the killing of these people. Accident. The guy was zigzagging trying to hit more people. That's a testimony. That's a testimony. Uh, the great Nick Short, communications director for the Claremont Institute, says they cannot be this stupid, but they are this brazen to call multiple counts of intentional homicide an accident. Read the Wisconsin versus Daryl Brooks criminal complaint. This is not an accident, and Brooks could have exited the parade route multiple times before accelerating into parade participants. All right. Check this out. Based upon information from various law enforcement officers with the city of Waukesha Police Department, believed to be truthful and reliable in this instance, November 21st, 2021, Detective Casey was working traffic control for the annual Waukesha Christmas Parade, which is being held in the downtown area, city of Waukesha, Wisconsin. He was assigned to traffic control intersection of White Rock Avenue and East Main Street. The staging area for the parade participants was on White Rock Avenue from Perkins Avenue south to East Main Street. There were approximately 100 entries in the parade with hundreds of participants and thousands of people watching the parade. The parade had already started. There are numerous people, vehicles, and floats already on the parade route on East Main Street. Approximately 4.35 p.m., Detective Casey Heard via the Waukesha police radio that a reserve officer was informed by a citizen that two people were fighting in the area of White Rock School. Squads were sent to that area to further investigate. A few minutes later, Detective Casey heard a horn honking from an area north of his location. Detective Casey went out onto White Rock Avenue to see where the horn sound was coming from. He observed the White Rock Avenue was filled with parade participants, as was East Main Street. He began to see people spreading apart and observed a red Ford Escape driving southbound on White Rock Avenue. He observed people jumping out of the way of the red Ford Escape. As the Ford Escape was at White Rock Avenue and East Main Street, Detective Casey stepped in front of the Ford Escape and pounded on the hood of the vehicle and yelled multiple times, Stop! Detective Casey was wearing a shirt with patches on both shoulders that stated Waukesha Police, as well as wearing a black hat with white letters on the front of the hat, which stated police. Further, he was wearing 
a neon orange safety vest that stated police in the front and back of it. The Ford Escape continued driving and turned westbound on East Main Street. At that time, the vehicle was driving at a slow speed, and the vehicle brushed Detective Casey back off the front of the car, causing him to be positioned down the driver's side of the vehicle. Detective Casey went to the driver's side window and pounded on the driver's side door, yelling, Stop! Detective Casey subsequently positively identified the driver of the Ford Escape as Daryl E. Brooks Jr., here and after referred to as the defendant. Defendant drove past Detective Casey and into the parade procession. Detective Casey chased the vehicle to East Avenue on foot, and he observed the vehicle began to drive faster. The vehicle turned right onto East Main Street toward Officer Butrin. As the vehicle was traveling westbound on East Main Street, Officer Butrin was standing directly in line with the vehicle, wearing a full city of Waukesha Police Department uniform. He put his hands up and yelled, stop, stop the vehicle multiple times. Based on his training and experience, Officer Butrin estimated the vehicle's speed to be approximately 25 miles per hour. Vehicle was initially sticking to the north side of the road in the open lane between the parade participants and spectators. Officer Butrin observed the driver looked straight, looking straight ahead directly at him, and it appeared he had no emotion on his face. As the vehicle passed his location, Officer Butrin continually yelled for the vehicle to stop. The vehicle continued traveling westbound to East Main, passed through the intersection of East Main and Buckley Street. Officer Butrin concluded that if the driver was lost in attempting to get out of the parade, this would have been a reasonable location for him to stop and exit the parade route. Vehicle then got to the intersection of East Main and Northwest Barstow Street, and it appeared the brakes were activated. Officer Butrin believed the vehicle was going to come to a stop and attempt to make a right turn out on out of the parade route. However, the vehicle then appeared to rapidly accelerate. As Officer Butrin heard tires squeal, the vehicle took an abrupt left turn into, into the crowd of parade participants. At this point, it was clear to Officer Butrin this was an intentional act to strike and hurt as many people as possible. He observed the vehicle appeared to be intentionally moving side to side, striking multiple people, and bodies and objects were flying from the area of the vehicle. Detective Trussoni spoke with multiple citizen witnesses who were present during the parade. One witness indicated, as I continued to watch the SUV, it continued to drive in a zigzag motion. It was like the SUV was trying to avoid vehicles, not people. There was no attempt made by the vehicle to stop, much less slow down. Detective Trussoni spoke with another witness who described the same zigzag driving pattern by the SUV, and the witness further indicated he felt it was a direct intent to hit as many parade participants as possible. Is Fox News Radio still saying this guy was fleeing some kind of domestic event and it was an accident? Is that, is that still? I mean, they're, they're, Fox News Radio is no better than MSNBC or CNN on television. Horrible. It's horrible what happened, and the guy belongs under the jail, in my humble opinion, and you're entitled to it. Unfreaking believable. Here's the judge. Here's the judge. I have no problem with the bail being recommended by the state. I'm an old guy who has been doing this for almost 40 years. DA's office, criminal defense attorney, 17, 18 years as a uh, 
commissioner, both in Milwaukee and uh, now in Waukesha. The nature of this offense is shocking. Uh, actually, the detail I was not expecting here today that two, two detectives, not lay people, detectives, uh, not only tried to stop this, but rendered an opinion that this was an intentional act. You're presumed innocent, sir, uh, but that's what the allegations are. Um, and I've not seen anything like this in my very long career. Um, it seems to be a very strong case for the state. Likelihood of incarceration, which is the other aspect of bail, is absolute. If you are found guilty of any one of these, a multitude of them, it's a life imprisonment sentence that must be meted out. So I, I have no problem. I just, with, with that bail, it's extraordinarily high, but it's an extraordinarily big case. It's an extraordinarily uh, serious case with an extraordinary history of this gentleman um, of fleeing, of hurting people, of not following court orders, not following um, criminal laws, not f following just your societal norms. Um, so I know that that's extraordinarily high bail. Uh, it's warranted here, and I am setting cash bail in the amount of $5 million. That's good. That's good. I mean, he, he, he deserves that and, and a lot more. I don't think anybody's going to come up with that kind of bail money, do you? I don't think anybody is going to come up with that kind of bail money. But part of the problem here, why this racist black nationalist with Black Lives Matter all over his social media just murdered six white people with his SUV. Hat tip to Jesse Kelly, talk show host out of Houston. Part of the problem here is that the guy never, never should have been out in the first place. You know what I'm saying? Now, another thing, you remember when uh, GoFundMe said they wouldn't allow people to raise money for Kyle Rittenhouse's legal defense fund? Remember that? Oh, we can't have anything to do with violence. Well, they sure let somebody put up a legal defense fund for Daryl Brooks, the alleged murderer in Waukesha. Christmas parade massacre. They sure let that happen. His latest victim, an eight-year-old boy. Eight-year-old Jackson, Jackson Sparks, along with his 12-year-old brother, were both seriously hurt after a driver 
plowed through the Christmas parade Sunday. Both boys are taken to Children's Wisconsin for treatment. Eight-year-old Jackson Sparks underwent brain surgery. Update yesterday said he uh, succumbed to his injuries and passed away. I mean, this this guy needs to be executed. I don't think they have capital punishment in Wisconsin. That's a crying shame. That's a crying shame. There's um. There's so much injustice. I'm saying, Holmes. There's so much injustice. This guy should never have been out. UK Daily Mail bringing the receipts exclusive. Waukesha suspects shared social media posts promoting violence toward white people and claiming black people were the true Hebrews. Quote, the old white people knocked them to F out. Thirty-nine-year-old Daryl Brooks Jr. charged with five counts of first-degree intentional homicide, and more charges are pending. Prosecutors said yesterday, "Well, I'm sure it'll be six counts now." Social media posts show the suspect was a strong supporter of Black Lives Matter and also encouraging encouraged knocking out white people. He wrote in June 2020, "So when we start back knocking white people to f out, I don't want to hear it. The old white white people too." Knock them to F out, period. Five of the six victims, all white, who died on Sunday were aged 52 to 82 and part of a Waukesha club known as the Dancing Grannies. Victims of November 21st attack, 79-year-old Virginia Sorensen, 71-year-old Liana Owens, 52-year-old Tamara Durand, 52-year-old Jane Coolidge, and 82-year-old Wilhelm Hospital. On Tuesday, eight-year-old Jackson Sparks was named by relatives as the sixth victim, having died in hospital from his injuries. Now, Brooks had been bailed out of jail two days earlier after posting a $1,000 cash bond on charges of battery, disorderly conduct, bail jumping, and resisting an officer. See, because they got one of those um, George Soros-funded prosecutors up there in Milwaukee. He likes violent people getting out. He likes that. And he even said 15 years ago, with this result and the people getting killed, well, yeah, but we got to do the right thing. Got to do the right thing. Capital punishment in Wisconsin was abolished in 1853. Wisconsin was one of the earliest United States to abolish the death penalty. as the only state that has performed only one execution in its history. That's a shame, man. That's a crying shame. This guy deserves. Deserves be executed 
And uh, it's a shame they can't put the prosecutor in jail. You know what I'm saying, Holmes? Shame they can't put the prosecutor in jail. Because this is intentional. This is intentional. No, he said 15-some years ago that, yeah, he's sure that some people will be killed because he's letting violent people out, but he called it the right thing to do. He's doing the right thing. I got to tell you, man. I got to tell you. A lot of bad things in this country. And um, a wise man once said, Work like everything depends on you. Pray like everything depends on God. And that's what we need to do. And part of our prayers need to be for God to give us the wisdom to know what to do and how to do it. All right? There is some. Um, A lot of rage. A lot of rage about Kyle Rittenhouse being acquitted. On the five counts at his murder trial. Jonathan Turley. Who is a law professor. He's a liberal. An interesting take on it. He said, the aftermath of the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict is a, is a lesson in unrequited rage. After a jury of 12 citizens in Kenosha, Wisconsin, acquitted Rittenhouse on all charges, politicians and media figures lashed out of the judge, the jury, and the entire legal system. Like our politics and our media, the legal system has become a vehicle for collective rage. There's no room for doubt or deviation from our predispositions, yet in Denouncing vigilante justice, pundits and politicians seem to be advocating for a form of mob justice. The difference between vigilante and mob justice, perspective and numbers. For some, Rittenhouse running down Sheridan Road and Kenosha with his AR-15 is vigilante. For Rittenhouse, people chasing him with guns and chains is a mob. Neither involves actual justice, which is what juries meet out through the dispassionate application of laws and facts. By the way, waiting for the verdict on the uh, Ahmaud Arbery uh, murder trial in Brunswick, Georgia, where I used to live. Most of us, including his defense counsel, following the verdict were critical of Rittenhouse and his decision to take his AR-15 to a riot. However, the trial revealed key facts that sharply diverge from past media reports. For the first time, the public was not reading facts filtered and framed by the media. In a great demonstration of the value of cameras and courtrooms, the public could reach its own conclusions. It turned out Rittenhouse was not an outsider but someone with long, close ties to Kenosha. He spent much of that fateful day in Kenosha cleaning graffiti from the walls of the high school and was asked by a business owner to protect his property that night. He did not chase down his victims and shoot one, 36-year-old Joseph Rosenbaum, in the back as Rosenbaum attempted to flee 
Instead, he was attacked by all three men he shot, including one who pointed a gun at his head. Rosenbaum, a convicted child molester with a history of mental illness, threatened to kill him and others earlier. Yet the white supremacist narrative was a fact too good to check by the media, which almost uniformly failed to report on facts supporting the claim of self-defense. Within days of the shooting, then-presidential candidate Joe Biden, the great usurper, Reference Rittenhouse as a white supremacist despite no evidence supporting that widely repeated claim. Likewise, when the judge ruled on motions for Rittenhouse, he was declared a racist. When the jurors ruled for Rittenhouse, they, including a black juror, were declared to be racist too. When Rittenhouse was allowed to go free, the entire legal system was denounced as racist. Even after grudgingly stating that we must abide by the verdict, Usurper Biden added that the verdict left many Americans feeling angry and concerned, myself included. Other leaders went further. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio called the verdict disgusting and a victory for violent extremism from within our own nation. Former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo denounced the verdict as, quote, a stain on the soul of America, an example of supremacist vigilantism, unquote. Cuomo, soon to be a criminal defendant in his own trial, may want to Consider how mob justice could play out in his case. U.S. Representative Cory Bush, Democrat, Missouri, declared the judge, the jury, the defendant, it's white supremacy in action. The system isn't built to hold white supremacists accountable. That's why black and brown folks are brutalized and put in cages while white supremacist murderers walk free. Black and brown folks put in cages. They talk about over in Libya. For Corey Bush and others, it's just that simple. Jurors selected at random were racist because they failed to convict a white defendant who shot three white men. MSNBC legal analyst and Georgetown law professor Paul Butler, who previously described the trial as white supremacy on steroids, said the verdict is a message that vigilante justice prevailed. MSNBC posted an opinion blog headlined, Kyle Rittenhouse trial was designed to protect white conservatives who kill. Okay, Travis McMichael guilty of malice murder in the Ahmad Arbery murder case in Brunswick, Georgia. Just looking at this coming across. Travis McMichael is the uh, the son. He and his dad were the ones who confronted Ahmad Arbery uh, that fateful Sunday afternoon a while back in uh, Brunswick, Georgia. So Travis McMichael guilty of malice murder. We'll see what the uh, what the verdicts are on his dad and their friend who was in the other vehicle. The friend in the other vehicle, by the way, was not uh, immediately arrested as soon as the McMichaels were. I'll get back to Jonathan Turley and, and Rittenhouse here in a minute. Um, I saw the video, <clears throat> and... Um, I interviewed the gentleman, uh, Scott Rifen. I used to work with him. He's a uh, morning radio talk show host in Brunswick, Georgia. I interviewed him. He's the one who was given a copy of the video and released it to the media. And a couple of things I saw. Um, I didn't think, and I'm not a Georgia law expert, but I didn't really think the McMichaels 
okay, Travis McMichael also guilty of aggravated assault use of the shotgun. I didn't really think that the McMichaels, um, Travis McMichael also guilty of false imprisonment. I didn't think they necessarily had the right to do what they were doing. Travis McMichael also guilty of criminal attempt to commit a felony. Um, see, the problem with the video is you're seeing it from behind a truck and some of what's going on is in front of the truck. So I didn't really think that the McMichaels definitely had the right to try to stop him and hold him with a gun. Um, it looked like to me, yeah, they may be guilty of murder. I also, okay, Gregory McMichael not guilty on malice murder. That's the dad. But I also thought that um, okay, Gregory McMichael guilty of felony murder. I also thought if if Ahmed Arbery had just stood there and said, "Okay, fine, call the cops. I'm not going to do anything. I'll just stand right here," and you know that he might have lived. Uh, Greg McMichael, guilty of aggravated assault, used the shotgun. Greg McMichael, guilty of aggravated assault, used the pickup trucks. Yeah, I mean, it, Greg McMichael, guilty of false imprisonment. Yeah, it looked like murder to me. It looked like they're going to be, or, or, or they're going to be found guilty of something causing his death, if not first degree, maybe second degree, or manslaughter, or whatever. Um, I did think they were guilty of causing his death for sure. Um, but it also looked like he started wrestling with, uh, one of them for the rifle. And I thought if he just stood there and said, okay, you call the cops, I'm standing here. I'm not doing anything. He probably would have lived. So that was a tough one. That was a tough one. Okay. Uh, William Bryan Jr. The guy in the other vehicle, not guilty of malice murder. William Bryan Jr., not guilty of felony murder. William Bryan Jr., guilty of felony murder. How can you be not guilty and guilty of the same thing? I, I didn't see what the, guy, the, the third guy, the guy in the other truck, had to do with anything. You know, having watched the videos and stuff. I took a great interest in it because I used to live over there. William Bryan Jr., not guilty of aggravated assault, use of the shotgun. William Bryan Jr., guilty of aggravated assault, use of pickup trucks. William Bryan Jr., guilty of false imprisonment. I don't know, man. This is coming down live as we're seeing this. William Bryan Jr., guilty of uh, attempt to commit a felony. So anyway... Um, One of the things that most of the people who listen to the Doc Washburn show listen to it later after the fact, not the live stream. Uh, we try to cover breaking news as it happens on the live stream, which um, if you download the Podbean app on your phone, it might actually work some of the time, and you can listen to it live. Anyway, Judge Timothy Walmsley, Georgia Eastern Circuit Superior Court, uh, conducting the uh, the trial, 
and uh, there was a lot of controversy over the fact that charges were not uh, brought right off the bat against the McMichaels. Um, and apparently a prosecutor there had to step down. There was some odd stuff going on in Brunswick, Georgia. Anyway, there will be um, a lot of hashing and rehashing on this. I recommend if you, you want to get uh, a really good commentary on it, go to LegalInsurrection.com, LegalInsurrection.com. All right, back to the fallout from the Rittenhouse trial. Back to the fallout from the Rittenhouse trial, Jonathan Turley writing about it. He said, MSNBC legal analyst in Georgia, Georgetown law professor Paul Butler, who previously described the trial as white supremacy on steroids, said the verdict is a message that vigilante justice prevailed. MSNBC posted an opinion blog headlined, Kyle Rittenhouse trial was designed to protect white conservatives who kill. Some were not satisfied to simply denounce the jury or judge as racist. Former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick declared that this was the final proof of what he called a system built on white supremacy that further validates the need to abolish our current system. Well, he's a, he's a communist, though, right? What appeared infuriating to Kaepernick about Kenosha was the absence of mob justice, not a victory of vigilante justice. Rittenhouse personified all of our social ills, according to Kaepernick, and had to be punished, sentenced to life in prison on the basis of popular opinion. That, of course, would transcend evidence or law. It would be a system based on demand, not deliberation, the very definition of mob justice. What is most concerning is the involvement of many in the media in this movement. We live in the age of advocacy journalism in which figures such as former New York Times reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones are lionized for declaring that all journalism is advocacy. Stanford journalism professor Ted Glasser has insisted journalism must free itself from this notion of objectivity to develop a sense of social justice. For legal analysts, this often means freeing ourselves not just from objectivity but from the criminal code. Indeed, after the jury failed to convict as demanded, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler, the Penguin, called for the Justice Department to investigate what he called the miscarriage of justice. In this case, the legal question under Wisconsin law was neither complex nor confusing. A person is privileged to threaten or intentionally use force against another for the purpose of preventing or terminating what the person reasonably believes to be an unlawful interference with his or her person by such other person. Lethal force is allowed if the actor reasonably believes that such force is necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to himself or herself. Each use of force by Rittenhouse was preceded by attacks by at least four men. The jury simply had a reasonable doubt that Rittenhouse acted without a reasonable belief that he faced great bodily harm. Not surprisingly, those facts often were not given out. They were not given out as a context for legal analysis. Instead, more amenable hypotheticals were trotted out. After the verdict, MSNBC legal analyst Joyce Vance explained that the verdict was something akin to saying if you go into a bank and rob it and people are trying to apprehend you, you can then shoot your way out and claim self-defense. You got that? Legal analysts and NBC said that. MSNBC. Good grief. Jonathan Turley says, 
except that Rittenhouse was not robbing a bank when he was attacked. He was not doing anything illegal in guarding a business at the owner's request or walking down the street. The jury decided that the men he shot were not apprehending him, but instead were attacking him without provocation. The facts of the case are now as irrelevant as the verdict, however, because we are a nation addicted to rage. And rage does not allow for doubt. In the minds of some, Rittenhouse was a vigilante, so his acquittal was vigilante justice. However, swapping mob justice for vigilante justice lacks the same critical element, justice. All right. Now, back to the sentencing in the Ahmad Arbery murder case. All three men found guilty on murder charges. The McMichaels and the guy who was in the other vehicle. So, what is to be done with the idea that we we have a systemically racist system if a jury in southeast Georgia finds all three guys who happen to be white guilty. Know what I'm saying? I mean, that doesn't bode well for the idea that uh, we have some kind of systemically racist system. I mean, you want you want systemic racism? Look at uh, Planned Parenthood. They've been attacking communities of color for a hundred years. But see, too many Democrat politicians are paid off, so they're not going to say anything about it. They're not going to say anything about that. So, can I give you a little good news, please? Can I please give you a little good news? Kylie Zimple over the Federalist says this. Amid unspeakable horrors, Waukesha teaches all of us what it means to be a community. And she's reporting from there, Waukesha, Wisconsin. She said, Guitar for Life Cafe was one of the only unlocked doors on West Main Street in downtown Waukesha Monday morning. So I stepped inside to buy a cup of coffee. It quickly became clear the shop wasn't actually open for business. The cafe was dark behind the front counter with a handful of people scattered among the wooden high tops and stools, nursing paper cups of steaming coffee. It wasn't immediately apparent when they were all, what they were all doing there. A kind man pointed me in the direction of the complimentary dispensers that help yourself. Soon, soon learned his name was Dan Faustman, He's been downtown for 14 years and has had the cafe and guitar studio on the corner of Main Street and West Broadway for two years. 
On Monday, he opened up his shop for chilly members of the press to warm up and anyone else in the community who needed a place to go to process what they'd all been through just hours before. A tear rolled down his cheek as he looked out the window at the abandoned strollers, lawn chairs, and blankets strewn across the curb along the street marked with candy and chalk circles recounting the harrowing events of Sunday night when an SUV plowed into the crowd, killing five and injuring at least 48, according to police. When Dan and his wife, Becky, who's a nurse, saw the SUV barrel down the route of the annual Christmas parade, the first impulse was to run out into the street. Becky tended to victims, helping to load injured people into squad cars when ambulance space ran out, while Dan ushered terrified families into his store for protection. Dan and Becky ran toward danger to help others. If you've seen any of the gut-wrenching footage from the deadly parade, you know they aren't the only ones. Video shows that the moment this disaster struck, countless bystanders immediately lurched into the road to aid the fallen. This kind of selflessness seems to characterize the Waukesha community, population 70,000, at every step. From the moment of tragedy to the immediate aftermath to the community-wide vigil and preparations for the long road of grief ahead. The people of Waukesha have answered the call of an unwanted challenge and offered a testimony of hope and resilience to a watching world. Bridge Church in Waukesha, which is only about a mile from downtown and near Waukesha South High School, opened its doors Sunday night for people to grieve and pray. Church office manager Michelle Pope told the Federalist only about 20 minutes after blasting out on Facebook the building would be open, roughly 70, 75 people gathered. On Monday, it opens its, it opened its building again to the hurting community and plans to do the same on Tuesday. Church volunteers helped Pizza Ranch pack lunches for first responders and passed out hot chocolate at Cutler Park as community members attended the vigil in below freezing temperatures. Ms. Pope says we just want to be available. Lakewood Baptist Church in neighboring Pewaukee, Wisconsin, opened its doors Sunday night too after four of its families were reportedly at the parade and two of its children participated in it. A church in nearby Muskego, the church in Wisconsin, attended the Monday evening vigil with their hands full, passing out water and hot apple cider to numb attendees. Two other ladies offered hot cider and cookies as a way of what they call giving back to community members of the vigil. When asked which organization they were representing, they declined to provide a name. One of them replied, this is for the community, not us today. Amid such an unspeakable tragedy, the prevailing atmosphere among the streets of Waukesha is still somehow one of light, not darkness. As one vigil attendee told the Federalist, even those who aren't part of the city or those who can't help in any other way can still pray, and that's something. 
Waukesha Mayor Sean Riley said, Last night, our wonderful Waukesha parade became the scene of a horrific tragedy. Last night, that parade became a nightmare. Last night, many were severely injured. Last night, lives were lost during the middle of what should have been a celebration. But, but that isn't the end of the story. Mayor Riley continued on Monday at the vigil saying, so often we focus on the perpetrator, so often we focus on the evil. And when we do that, we completely miss all the people who are helping. Waukesha Strong is a good way to put it. We rose to the occasion. Um, hang on a second. I need to kind of compose myself here and get a drink of water. Thanks for listening to the Doc Washburn Show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. Many of you have asked, how can we help support the show? Really easy. Go to DocWashburnShow.com and click Become a Patron at the top right corner of the website or click the Podbean logo where it says, Be My Patron on Podbean. We sure do appreciate your support of the Doc Washburn Show. Yes, we sure do. Yes, we sure do. Look, I, I just want to say something uh, before I continue. Um, if you are having issues with neck pain or migraines, I got a suggestion for you. Look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? If the answer to any of these is yes, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I get rid of my migraines and back pain and neck pain. Here's how it works. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces, so it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, and that restricts your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system, your reproductive system, your digestive system, and yes, it can even cause migraines and neck pain. Do yourself a favor. Do yourself a favor. And go to the website, turnmypoweron.com to get a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted. It's helped me. It's helped my wife. It's helped so many people that we know. Maybe they could help you too. Turnmypoweron.com and just click on Find a Doctor. Turnmypoweron.com. You'll be glad you did. You'll be glad you did. Okay. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's so much to talk about. We, we've only scratched the surface. I, I mentioned to you earlier on the show that the trial of Galen Maxwell, former girlfriend, former pimp, allegedly of uh, sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein, gets underway this coming Monday. Did you know Bill Gates flew with Jeffrey Epstein and the Lolita Express in 2013? In 2013 with a man whose charity aims to empower young girls joining the serial pedophile four years after he left prison. Did you know that? 
Yeah. Bill Gates flew from Teterboro Airport in New Jersey to Palm Beach March 1st, 2013 with Jeffrey Epstein. Um, so you see, that was after he's released from prison four years earlier after pleading guilty to two counts of soliciting a minor under the age of 18 for sex. Jeffrey Epstein had some powerful friends, didn't he? Had some powerful friends. I wonder, um, wonder what's going to come out in the trial of Glenn Maxwell. I wonder what's going to come out. Now, one of the things that we're commanded to do is to speak up for people who are not powerful. Okay? And I, I, I want to take a minute to do that right now. And first of all, thank you to Jennifer Von Lahr, managing editor at redstate.com. She's been working on a story for a couple of weeks. The case of Madera County, pardon me, it is the case Madera County refuses to give Jennifer Van Lahr the criminal complaint or the declaration of law enforcement officer on. But here's what it's about. They charged a mother with custody rights. She had full custody rights. They charged her with kidnapping and burglary for signing her daughter out of school, even though she had full custody of her daughter. Got that? It's a dirty little secret about the child welfare system in this country that our government don't want to talk about. Here are the specifics on this case. Brittany's former boyfriend signed a notarized statement agreeing to return their daughter at the end of summer visitation in California, and she would attend a private school Brittany had secured enrollment to. Then he cut off all communications, missed assessment dates, then refused to return the little girl to Nevada. So Brittany signed, I mean, Brittany filed a custody case in Nevada within days, and as of this time, they're still discussing jurisdictional issues. After hearing things from neighbors and from her daughter that gave her concerns for her daughter's safety, Brittany traveled to Madera County, California, to sign her daughter out of school fully within her rights. She showed picture ID. She had previously sent court documents to the school documenting the pending custody case in Nevada. The school stonewalled, so Brittany went to her daughter's classroom to retrieve her. Administrators followed her, filming her, and called the cops. Brittany left the school without incident, though cops were on the way, and as they made their way home, her daughter started detailing abuse allegations. She got an emergency therapist session, and based upon that, a restraining order was granted against her ex-boyfriend for both her and her daughter. 
There have been prior domestic violence restraining orders against her ex-boyfriend, who's also a convicted felon who abused Brittany during her pregnancy and until she escaped when her daughter was an infant. Yet, when she picked up her daughter, she still informed her abuser of where she was because law enforcement told her it was a civil matter that could become criminal if she didn't let him know where they were. Well, it's still become criminal, and she's facing three felony charges and separation from a daughter who's already been through hell. It seems that the local bureaucracy in Madera County, California, is more concerned with having the school administrators save face than with ensuring that a little girl is protected and allowing the family court process to do its job. But in the larger scheme, it's terrifying to see your local elementary school administrators can unilaterally declare that you, as a parent with full custodial rights, should not be signing your child out of school, hide your child from you, and then have you charged with felony kidnapping. It's terrifying. It is. And thank you so much, Jennifer Von Lahr, managing editor, Red State for getting the word out about that. And they're raising money at a website called givesendgo.com. I'll put it on my personal Facebook page here in a little bit. Yeah. That's um to give the state the power to take away children from parents without due process. I believe it's one of the biggest violations of human rights, one of the biggest violations of our Constitution in the history of this country. And yet they do it, and they do it, and they do it, and they do it. It's, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. By the way, did you hear that usurper Biden has announced he'll require essential non-resident travelers crossing U.S. land borders such as truck drivers to be fully vaccinated beginning on January 22nd. But as uh, the great Daniel Horowitz of The Blaze points out, but not illegals. Not illegals. So you got this uh, Pat Burke guy in New York, and we have a lot of people downloading the podcast in, in New York, and we appreciate you. Democrat New York State Legislator, Secretary of the Majority Conference in the New York State Legislature, Pat Burke, same guy who was crying crocodile tears earlier this year about people who can't afford health insurance and, and, and health care as a right. Now, now, he says, I'm introducing a bill that allows insurance providers to deny coverage for COVID-related treatment to those who refuse to be vaccinated, do your part or pay your own way. Freedom isn't free. Now, even Fauci has admitted the hospitalizations are rising among the fully vaccinated, but this idiot doesn't care. This idiot doesn't care. And again, the great Daniel Horowitz, who I quote often, says, how about the... How about refusing, um, denying coverage for people who refuse to take vitamin D supplements? I like his sense of humor. 
I like his sense of humor. So this came out yesterday from the Deseret Review from Dr. Justice R. Hope. A, a pandemic of the vaccinated or ivermectin ignored? Hello. And in it, he says, the World Health Organization stood ready to declare smallpox eradicated following the last known case in 1977 in Somalia. However, another human being contracted the dreaded disease in Birmingham, England, an industrial community 100 miles outside of London. 40-year-old Janet Parker, a medical photographer who worked in the anatomy department at Birmingham Medical School, began showing symptoms Friday, August 11, 1978. Her case would ignite a fierce controversy about whether variola, the scientific name for the smallpox virus, had escaped a medical laboratory. After the disease was confirmed as smallpox, her immediate family, including her parents, were quarantined and vaccinated as were a total of 500 contacts. Although her mother developed a mild infection, she survived. None of the others in direct contact with Janet contacted the disease, nursing, nursing staff, orderlies, anybody else. The vaccines are nearly perfectly protection against transmission. Ms. Parker's condition progressed relentlessly, leaving her almost blind to both eyes with pneumonia and renal failure, and she wound up dying a month later, September 11, 1978. But how did Janet get exposed? Professor Henry Bedson directed the smallpox laboratory at the medical school where Janet Parker was employed. It was one of only a few worldwide that conducted World Health Organization-related smallpox research. Professor Bedson was a virologist who headed the microbiology department at the University of Birmingham, and his area of specialty was, pro, uh, was pox viruses. Reginald Shooter investigated the case for the Department of Health and Social Security. In his report, one of the most damning documents ever produced by an official inquiry in Britain, was leaked to the press and found that Betson's smallpox lab did not meet basic dangerous pathogens advisory group guidelines. For example, <clears throat> it lacked an airlock, a shower, the necessary double door sterilizing autoclave, and proper changing facilities, the World Health Organization had ordered the lab's closure by year-end in 1978. But this did not come in time for Janet Parker, who contracted the deadly virus just four months before it was scheduled to close. Nigel Hawks, a journalist, felt she contracted it from a laboratory situated on the floor below her darkroom in the university medical school. Hawks described it that way in his 1979 article, Smallpox Death in Britain Challenges Presumption of Laboratory Safety. He said it shows that Mrs. Parker probably came into contact with the smallpox virus while making telephone calls from a disused office next to her darkroom. This office was linked to Bedson's animal pox room below a service duct. with access to the duct on each floor provided by inspection panels. On both floors, the panels were loose, and tests showed that a virus released in the animal pox room could find its way above. Shooter's thesis is therefore that the virus escaped from the smallpox room and from there through the service duct into the office above. As further evidence, the strain of smallpox contained at Benson's laboratory 
was known as the ABID variant, A-B-I-D. That's the same version subsequently identified in the fluid from Parker's body. Many felt this evidence was equivalent to a fingerprint and accused the university and Betson of negligence in Parker's death. However, Birmingham University fought back, attacking the leaked shooter report as prejudicial, and they appealed to the high court. They were represented by Brian Escott Cox, QC, a legendary barrister in England's version of America's racehorse Haynes. In October 1979, a three-magistrate panel ruled in favor of the university and dismissed the safety violation charges. Over the past 40 years, Barrister Escott Cox maintained his silence, but recently he finally broke his silence, spoke out about the case. In 2020, at age 88, lawyer Escott Cox announced his theory of what happened. Quote, It was clear to me before the case even started that we were going to be able to prove absolutely beyond any question of doubt whatsoever that airborne infection of smallpox cannot take place other than between two people who are face-to-face less than 10 inches apart. Unhappily, inevitably, once you have proven beyond any question of doubt that the smallpox could not have escaped from the laboratory and gone to Janet Parker, the overwhelming evidence, the overwhelming inference, is that Janet Parker must in some way or another have come to the smallpox, unquote. However, what's more troubling than the university's dismissal is the shooter report's contention this had happened before with this same lab and same disease. In 1966, another smallpox outbreak occurred in Birmingham that affected 73 people, killing one, another photographer performing exactly the same job as Parker. Because smallpox was still relatively common in the 1960s, and it didn't draw the same scrutiny and was never linked to the university. Hawks said there now seems little doubt it was the source. A man of the highest standards, both scientifically and ethically, Betson was a quiet man who loved trout fishing and cricket. However, after realizing the only logical explanation for Janus' disease was an escaped virus from his lab, he became despondent and took his own life. Professor Bedson and Janet died on the same day, September 11, 1978. Today, today the world finds itself in the throes of another pandemic, and unfortunately, based upon the evidence, another lab-leaked virus. However, unlike the smallpox vaccine, the COVID-19 shots are proving to be far from perfectly protective. The gateway to the Mediterranean, the territory of Gibraltar, containing the famed Rock of Gibraltar, whose strait can be seen from space. The rock has been a symbol of British naval strength. However, now the COVID-19 pandemic has become a symbol of vaccine weakness. Gibraltar is the most vaccinated place on the planet with more than 99% of its population fully vaccinated and with many also having received a booster. A total of over 94,000 vaccine doses have been administered to Gibraltarians. Considering Gibraltar has a population of just 30,000 people, that works out to an average of three shots per person, all right? Newsweek reports Gibraltar has administered enough shots to have vaccinated about 140% of its population. One might expect they would have no COVID-19 cases then, right, right, right? After all, the rest of the world is led to believe that the holy grail of herd immunity will come once we have sufficiently jabbed enough people with vaccines and boosters. However, the truth of the matter is much simpler. Attempting to vaccinate into an active pandemic 
involving a rapidly mutating virus is not working. It does not prevent transmission, nor does it prevent infection. While smallpox is a DNA virus that's very slow to mutate, COVID-19 is caused by an RNA virus that is prone to rapid mutation. While the vaccines were highly protective against the original Wuhan strain of SARS-CoV-2, they are no longer as effective against the Delta variant. Gibraltar is not alone among highly vaccinated populations exhibiting massive virus surges. According to the CDC, the state of Vermont has a higher vaccination rate at 72% than any other state in the U.S., yet it also has one of the highest rates of new COVID cases, according to the ABC News report. Now, where do we find low or no rates of COVID-19 cases, you might ask? Perhaps we could observe those countries or areas and note what they are doing differently to account for their success. For example, we know India has eliminated its COVID-19 pandemic after implementing a national ivermectin policy in the protocol. As a result, the states of Uttar Pradesh and Delhi have no more problems with pandemic surges. Over the last 75 days, Delhi has recorded less than 10 COVID-19 deaths. Likewise, Uttar Pradesh, with more than 230 million people, has recorded fewer than 20 COVID deaths in the past 60 days. While the United States, with a roughly similar population, has recorded over 87,000 deaths, more than 4,000 times as many. India's only remaining hotspot remains the highly vaccinated state of Kerala, which continues to pay the price over the last 30 days alone. Kerala has logged over 10,000 deaths. The main difference between Kerala and the rest of India was its lower use of ivermectin. Out of India's 267 deaths reported on November 19th of this year, fully 204 came from the state of Kerala. With 36 million people, tiny Kerala represents only 2.5% of India's population of 1.4 billion. However, they have 76% of India's daily COVID-19 deaths. In other words, it's 30 times more likely for an Indian resident of Kerala to die from the virus compared to a resident outside the state. But look at other cases. For example, Indonesia adopted ivermectin and saw their COVID-19 cases drop from 45,000 in July to just 347 cases per day in November of this year, a drop over 99%. Meanwhile, Gibraltar's cases doubled during the same time frame for an average of 30 per day to 60 per day. The U.S.'s daily cases doubled between July 22nd and November 19th. Singapore, a nation that enjoys a fully vaccinated percentage of over 88% as of November 5th this year, also sees COVID-19 cases moving fast in the wrong direction. Between July 23rd and November 20th, Singapore saw their cases rise from 130 a day to over 1,900 a day, an increase of 15-fold. This is nuts, man. <clears throat> this is nuts. He says, as I wrote in The Lesson of Kerala, ivermectin can make up for the low use of vaccination. However, vaccination cannot make up for the low use of ivermectin. So it should come as no surprise that like Kerala, Singapore has outlawed the use of ivermectin for COVID-19. It also should not be a surprise that Indonesia embraced using ivermectin. Indonesia, like most of India, has now reaped the benefits of ivermectin. But like Singapore, Gibraltar has not. And like the mystery of how Janet Parker somehow contracted smallpox, 
the lesson of Kerala hopes it seems hopelessly lost on the world at this time. Yes, it certainly does. That's uh, Dr. Justice R. Hope, M.D. Pandemic of the vaccinated or ivermectin ignored over the Deseret Review. Yeah. But uh, some folk don't want to hear it. Some folk don't want to hear that as uh, North Texas Sheriff's deputy family friends fighting to get hospital to give him ivermectin. Oh, yes, children. Can you imagine they would have to do that? Jason Jones, deputy North Texas, has been uh, in the hospital seriously ill with COVID-19, and they don't want him to get ivermectin. Here we go. Tonight, a sheriff's deputy's family still pushing for more options to treat his COVID-19. It's an ongoing battle. This is even after a court ruled against them. And as Jason Allen reports, the deputy's wife said that the fight now is also to help other families. A hospital room at Texas Health Hughley in Fort Worth has been Jason Jones' home now for almost two months. And his family and friends. He's a man in blue! are rallying for permission to try whatever it takes to get him well enough to leave. It's amazing. I am so uh, proud of everybody that came out today. And I thank each and every one of them. God has led us to this path and to get the word out to help other families. With her husband still struggling under approved treatments, Erin Jones sued the hospital last month and initially won to have an outside doctor come in and give him ivermectin, a drug the FDA has not approved to treat COVID. What I want, it wasn't in their protocol. Yeah. And uh, with only that much time left to live, you might as well just try everything that you can. An appeals court, though, last week overturned that, writing that judges aren't doctors and can't decide on particular medicines or treatments. Texas Health said, in part, in a statement, people can have strong views on the search for treatments and cures for COVID-19. Our COVID-19 treatment decisions are based on science and guidelines from medical and scientific authorities. Though the family hasn't said if they'll keep pursuing the issue in court, they're not backing down from pushing for their treatment of choice for Jason Jones or for other patients in the same situation. In Fort Worth, Jason Allen, CBS 11 News. Okay, so why the hospitals want to kill these people? Why do the hospitals want to kill these people? There's no excuse. Ivermectin works. They know it works, and they don't care. And they don't care. I mean, why do you think they want them dead? There's no excuse, fam. I ain't going to lie. There's no excuse whatsoever that these hospitals are continuing to deny treatment that they know works. And if they don't know it, if they're that ignorant, then... 
they shouldn't uh, be practicing medicine, should they? No, they shouldn't. No, they shouldn't. But it's hard to believe they're that ignorant, right? I mean, there's just, there's no excuse. Let me uh, let me check out uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis talking to Ben Shapiro. Uh, he put this up uh, just a little bit ago. Well, in 2012, that was kind of in the Obama era, and, and I really saw Obama is taking the country in a direction that was not consistent with kind of the core founding principles of the country. In fact, I even wrote a book prior to me going into office about it. Uh, it was read by about a dozen people at the time, but nevertheless, it's out there uh, where I kind of talked about how kind of the founders conceived this, how people like Lincoln and Reagan applied applied these principles and how we were really veering off that. And uh, and those were good fights, and, and I'm glad we did it. Uh, but I got to tell you, I look back at that now, it was it's almost kind of quaint because I think what we're facing now has been much more aggressive uh, from the left in terms of across a wide range of institutions, not just the federal government, which of course they are being very aggressive, but big tech, corporate media, academia, all these things, the bureaucracy, all these things that are happening. Uh, so I got into it because I saw some things going wrong. And here in Florida, I think the, the, the good thing about it is you actually can do something about it. And in the Congress, you're one of 435 so much of the power is all within the leadership. So a lot of these big bills, there'll be thousands of page bills. They'll do it behind closed doors and they'll shove it down the throats of everyone. You don't have time to read it. And, and that's kind of how it's going. So if you're somebody that has good ideas and have a lot of energy, you kind of get ground down in Washington. And so we were able to do some things, but I looked at the governor and I was like, you know what? If you are willing to lead and you're willing to get out in front on issues, you have an opportunity to do a lot of good things. And so that's what we've been able to do. And I think that I probably did more as governor my first two weeks in terms of tangible, long-lasting accomplishments than a normal congressman can do in a decade. There you have it. There you have it. I mean, uh, wide, widely confirmed reports now that Nancy Pelosi and her husband has spent millions, millions on a seaside mansion. It was like $20 million, Jupiter Island, Florida, right? So after she has helped destroy her home state of California, she's... Uh, Moving off to uh, a state the Democrats always say is horrible, Florida, right? Part of the crime problem we have, we have a lot of prosecutors in this country who are funded by George Soros, a man who is trying to destroy this country. He has made a lot of money, made billions, destroying the economies of other countries. And so he funds these people running for district attorney or prosecutor, whatever you want to call it in your state, who don't take violent crime seriously. It's a perfect example of a Washington Free Beacon. Soros prosecutors let sex offenders CVS burglar free. After a registered sex offender was arrested twice in three days on felony charges in Northern Virginia, 
Local leaders are wondering what it takes to land a criminal behind bars when lenient prosecutors backed by George Soros are administering justice. The serial CVS bandit, 44-year-old Kareem Clayton, has a seedy criminal history ranging from menacing a CVS employee with a knife to leading police on a high-speed chase in a major regional thoroughfare. But <clears throat> Fairfax County, Virginia prosecutor Steve Descano and Arlington County, Virginia prosecutor Parisa Degani Tafti, who cruised to victory with six-figure donations from George Soros, have brought charges against Clayton at least a dozen times between them only to abandon their cases or plead them out, plead them out on paltry misdemeanors with almost no jail time. Sean Kennedy, president of Virginia's for Safe Communities, says radical leftist prosecutors like Steve Descano and Parisa Degani Tafti do not represent the public or crime victims. Their allegiances lie with criminal defendants first, last, and always. A two-year-long spike in violent crime is a political hazard for usurper Joe Biden and Democrats. Virginia Governor-elect Glenn Youngkin hammered a public safety message throughout his campaign, promising to fully fund law enforcement and fire an inmate-friendly state parole board. Republican candidates in the Commonwealth of Virginia are homing in on a similar strategy ahead of next year's midterm elections. Thus far, Clayton's twin arrests in the last week of September have netted him only three months in prison. He was arrested for assault and batteries Sunday, September 26th, Fairfax County, released on bail the next morning. According to Virginia court records, the case has not yet been resolved. Authorities arrested Clayton the very next day in Arlington County for stealing from CVS. Court records show Clayton was sentenced to 12 months in jail after Degani Tafti's office pled him down to a misdemeanor for the CVS robbery. He can serve nine of these months on probation, however, meaning he'll spend just... 90 days behind bars. On a separate occasion, June 2020, Clayton robbed a CVS in Chantilly, Virginia, in broad daylight. He fled in a 2016 Dodge Journey and led authorities on an extended chase with speeds exceeding 100 miles per hour. The chase ended when Clayton crashed in Arlington, Virginia. He faced a felony eluding and disregarding police charge, which Toscano's office pled down to a misdemeanor in September 2020, according to court records. He was sentenced to 180 days in prison, but could log up to 170 of them on probation. He also faced a felony assault on law enforcement charge arising from that event from Degani Tafti's office, which was abandoned in September 2020. Apart from his Northern Virginia crime spree, Clayton registered as a sex offender in Washington, D.C., following a 2015 conviction for abuse of a child. He lives a third of a mile away from an elementary school, according to home address listed on a sex offender registry, He's been prosecuted in D.C. courts for driving under the influence, tampering with a GPS ankle monitor he was required to wear as a condition of parole, and as ever, robbing another CVS. According to a report from a case services agency, prosecutors filed the tampering charge in November 2020 after he was cited for five separate, deadly ba five separate dead battery violations. Offenders are responsible for keeping their ankle monitor batteries charged at all times. Three months later, a D.C. Superior Court judge issued a bench warrant for Clayton after he failed to appear at a hearing on the tampering case. Those two incidents, plus a high-speed chase through Arlington, are strong evidence Clayton is a flight risk who won't cooperate with the judicial process. That usually counts heavily against allowing a defendant to bond out of custody. 
But Soros's Justice and Public Safety Pack donated more than $600,000 each to Descano and Degani Tafti's campaigns. Soros has also bankrolled successful prosecutorial campaigns in Loudoun County and Norfolk, Virginia. Public safety issues contributed to recent Republican successes in Virginia, and Descano and Degani Tafti could prove an albatross for Democrat lawmakers next year. Representative Jennifer Wexton, Democrat of Virginia, who represents the Northern Virginia District where Youngkin made gains in November, is a top target for national Republicans. Jeannie Lawson, Prince William County Supervisor, challenging Wexton next year who promises to oppose the woke anti-police agenda and work with law enforcement, says Jennifer Wexton has supported radical prosecutors who give deference to criminals, not victims. Zach Smith, a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, a former federal prosecutor, told Washington Free Beacon, Clayton typifies enforcement patterns that have a trickle-down effect on law enforcement. He said, I suspect a large number of crimes simply aren't being captured because police aren't going to make arrests. They're not going to waste their limited resources arresting someone for a crime they know the prosecutor won't prosecute and where they know the person will be released from jail almost instantaneously. Progressive prosecutors usually describe offenses like larceny or prostitution as quality-of-life issues, victimless crimes that are better addressed by diversionary programs or social service referrals. Smith takes exception to that idea, noting that Walgreens is shutting down locations around San Francisco due to rampant shoplifting while other major retailers reduce their hours. He told the Free Beacon, if you think about it, it's poor and minority communities that bear the disproportionate brunt of these policies. If you're a middle-class family and the closest CVS closes, it's probably not that big a deal. But if you're a poor single mother who relies on walking or public transportation, it's a very big deal. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And it's intentional. It's intentional. Now, those are my listeners in the um, Pulaski County area of Arkansas. I don't know how many of you realize that your prosecuting attorney, your prosecuting attorney is retiring next year. Larry Jegley, after a long and storied career. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. If George Soros... Bankrolls, a prosecuting attorney for Central Arkansas who will let people go, violent criminals go. Don't be surprised. I mean, if that happens, you're going to see um, you're going to see uh, real estate values in Little Rock, Arkansas, tumble, just tumble. I hope it doesn't, but don't be surprised. Wait, what's this? Margot Cleveland, over thefederalist.com, Georgia governor releases more evidence that 2020 ballots were miscounted? I'm shocked. I'm shocked, I tell you. See, this is the kind of stuff they're not allowed to talk about on Fox News. They're allowed to. Even Tucker, and God bless him. God bless Tucker. Thank you, Tucker Carls, for that January 6th Patriot Purge series on Fox Nation. Thank you, Tucker, for interviewing Tony Bobolinsky right before the election last, last November. 
the business associate of Biden's. Thank you, Tucker, for doing a great job with Kyle Rittenhouse. But has Tucker ever mentioned the Arizona audit, which came out a couple of months ago? I don't think so. Margot Cleveland, senior contributor to The Federalist, served nearly 25 years as a permanent law clerk to a federal appellate judge and is a former full-time faculty member and adjunct instructor at the College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. And she's got the article, Georgia Governor Releases More Evidence That 2020 Ballots Were Miscounted. Subtitle, While Nothing Will Change the Fact that Joe Biden is President, Election Integrity Matters in Governor Brian Kemp's letter is but the latest proof that it must be shored up in America. She says, last week, Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp referred data to the state election board showing 36 inconsistencies in the results of a Fulton County audit. This development provides yet the latest example of the chaos controlling the November 2020 election and the corrupt media's refusal to care. With only 11,779 votes out of nearly 5 million votes cast, separating Biden and Trump, in the final tally in Georgia for the 2020 presidential election, the southern state, and specifically Fulton County, the state's most populous county, and the home of the Democrat heavy city of Atlanta, became a focal point following the November general election. After a recounted audit confirmed Biden carried the state, politicians and press joined forces proclaiming, nothing to see here, move along. But there was a lot to see there and elsewhere throughout the country. It was just hidden or in some cases destroyed. And while nothing will change the fact Joe Biden's president, election integrity matters, and Kemp's letter is but the latest proof it must be shored up in America. It's a long article. I'll put it on my Facebook page. I hope you look at it. They stole it. You know they stole it. I know they stole it. They stole it. And I'll never back down. I'll never back down. Oh, my goodness. What else do we have here? What else do we have? Oh, yeah. Biden. America is the only major economy, the only one in the world where the economy is bigger today and families have more money in their pockets today than before the pandemic hit. That's even after accounting for inflation. None of our competitors internationally can say that. None. It's a testament to the hard work and perseverance of the American people. It's a a testament to the effectiveness of the vaccines and our vaccination effort. And it's a testament to the economic policies we fought so hard to pass. Lies. Nothing but lies. He's reading a teleprompter. He doesn't even know what he's saying. He's reading a teleprompter. By the way, um... I don't know if you heard, but Best Buy has sent out a notice offering their employees counseling services after the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. Can't make this stuff up. Mark Irvin, Chief Inclusion, Diversity, and Talent Officer with Best Buy. This message was sent to all employee resource resource group members. The verdict in Kyle Rittenhouse's trial stirs many emotions. It's another difficult moment for our nation. While these events can be challenging and deeply hurtful, I hope you'll take a moment to reflect on the values that unite us as a company and as a nation. We can do better and we will do better. 
as each of us as individuals, allies and human beings press together for better outcomes. He says, I know events like these can take a toll on him. That's enough. That's enough. What an idiot. As, as the late great Bugs Bunny would say, what a maroon. What a maroon. Are you kidding me right now, man? Are you kidding me? Everybody is all bummed out that a guy wouldn't let other people murder him. That's what they're bummed out about, that he wouldn't let people murder him. Daniel Harwitz over the blaze says the article, Wisconsin Governor Evers vetoed bills that could have kept Waukesha suspect behind bars. He also has the article, The Media Misses the Lesson of Africa and COVID in Plain Sight. There's nowhere for the priests of COVID stand to run or hide from the failure of these their prized injections. Cases in Europe are worse than ever, and America has now racked up more deaths than in 2020 when zero vaccines existed. But reality can hit these people in the face, and they will still never admit that all of the human interventions failed. As Europe battles its fifth wave, and even East Asian countries begin to face serious waves of the virus, the Associated Press wrote an article last week claiming that something mysterious is going on in much of continental Africa, as these African nations appear to have dodged the pandemic. The AP says, but there is something mysterious going on in Africa this puzzling scientist said Wafa Al-Sadr, chair of global health at Columbia University. She said Africa doesn't have the vaccines and the resources to fight COVID-19 that they have in Europe and the U.S., but somehow they seem to be doing better. She said fewer than 6% of people in Africa are vaccinated. For months, the World Health Organization has described Africa as one of the least affected regions in the world in its weekly pandemic reports. Well, no kidding. Contrast that with Europe, where cases are now worse than at any time in the U.S., despite nearly every adult vaccinated in many continental European countries. Perhaps the Africans don't have enough money to pay for the rope to hang themselves with leaky vaccines, counterproductive lockdowns, and failed therapeutics like remdesivir. I still can't believe that Trump went on with Levin on his Fox News show Sunday night and talked about how wonderful remdesivir is. How can you be that tone deaf? Anyway, he says, Africans can't afford to spend $3,000 per dose to have people's kidneys fail. And instead of using cheap anti-malaria and anti-parasitic drugs like hydroxychloroquine, like ivermectin. Yes, it's true. Africans are younger and the country's data is less reliable but that cannot account for the fact that COVID deaths have been nearly non-existent in many of these countries in Africa. Those explanations offered by the AP simply cannot bridge the gap. Curiously, the AP posits that perhaps past infection with parasitic diseases, as well as exposure to malaria, might make people in these countries more immune to the virus. Yeah. They said on Friday, researchers working in Uganda said they found COVID-19 patients with higher rates of exposure to malaria were less likely to suffer severe disease or death than people with little history of the disease. Well, gee, why would that be? What about the pathophysiology of those diseases would make people immune to a virus? After all, we have been lectured 
by those so vociferously against hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin that there can't possibly be cross-relation between the immune response to a parasitic infection and the response to a viral infection? Could it possibly be the fact those countries happen to constantly treat themselves with drugs like uh, the one that begins with the I and the one that begins with the H? Since 1987, Merck has been funneling several hundred million doses of ivermectin per year through the Mectazan donation program, which includes all the Central African countries. How are the Mectazan countries doing? They're doing real well. Now, obviously, there are multiple factors involved in the success of these countries, likely including the lack of international travel. However, it's laughable for the media to entertain parasitic infections as a contributing factor without mentioning the two drugs being used to treat COVID that are commonly used in those countries to treat parasitic infections. What is also clear is that the vaccines simply play no role in determining the trajectory of this pandemic, at least not a positive one. This is great stuff. This is great stuff. But um, I got to tell you, I guess it's about time to wrap it up. <laughs> I could go on all day. I love talking to you. I do. But I guess it's about time to wrap it up. And I appreciate the patience of my staff. They didn't know what they were getting into when they, we started this, you know. Um, 32 episodes ago. Anyway, I'll just say it. You've been listening to the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X. Well, that's the way it is. Wednesday, November 24th, 2021. <laughs>